Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk. Please consult with a qualified fiduciary advisor about your specific situation. Welcome to Money Talk, the longest-running weekly personal finance radio show in Wisconsin. Annex Wealth Management is a proud member of the Barron's Top Advisor List and the Financial Times Top 300 List. Know the difference. Now, here are your hosts, Dave Spano and Mark Oswald. Welcome to the show, everybody. Here we go. It's Money Talk, Team Tech Trust. Again, website, AnnexWealth.com. A little bit later on the show, how Annex Wealth Management assists employers offer great 401k plans for their employees. Also, is Social Security changing in six different ways in 2020? We have a Social Security expert on staff, and we are going to talk to him. My name is Danny Clayton. Good morning, Mark Oswald. Good morning, guys. Mr. Felsky. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well. You're going to show me your new iPhones later? I guess they got released yeah. yesterday, right? Yeah, they did. The 11s came out, and of course, they uh, opened them up in New York City in Manhattan, and a lot of hoopla around all that and uh, we'll see what happens with Apple stock Derek because you know this is a new device now it'll be interesting to see how many people abandon, abandon their sevens and eights and tens and go out and get an 11 now well and what I gather it's it's the camera that's the real differentiator on this particular uh, model um, I'm gonna wait till a 5g phone is available. I'm not interested in spending $1,000 without 5G capability. Well, I'm going to stick with my flip phone until we get a little further into this technology <laughs> hey, thing as well. You're dating yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I'm the Android guy. It is time for our Week in Review. Let's talk about it because there was a lot going on. There certainly was, Derek. We started the week with a spike in energy costs uh, based on some events over the last weekend. We'll get to that a little later in the show, but probably the star of the week was the Fed meeting and what came out of that. Well, as widely expected, the Fed lowered the the discount rate by 25 basis points. Uh, that was, that's, was no surprise to the markets. Uh, what people were particularly focused on was how the chairman handled the uh, press conference following that release. And we're not the only country that is lowering rates. When you look around the world, there, there's been the European Central Bank has lowered rates. The Bank of Japan has lowered their rates. The Bank of China has lowered their rates. There's kind of this race to the bottom when it comes to monetary policy around the world. It's really interesting to see. You know, the U.S. is kind of, at this point in time, they have to do something to keep up with the rest of the world. Well, right. Our Fed funds rate relative to other rates globally was, was too high. The Fed has clearly signaled through their pivot from December that they probably made one, if not two, rate hike mistakes. And they've done a fairly quick job of, of altering right. that. I think it's healthy because everything's relative when you're talking about trade and you're talking about the strength of the U.S. dollar versus other currencies. The things that the Fed does really impacts that from everything from, you know, the way that the economy is perceived around the world to do we continue to have positive growth. I think the comments from Chairman Powell were very interesting after that. He really talked about there being two reasons for a rate cut at this point in time. One of them was business uncertainty. Yeah, that's clearly had an effect not just on growth in the United States, but also overseas. Uh, and I think the second factor that you were pointing to was that essentially their view of what the neutral rate is has changed. It's gone down some. It used to be about 2 to 3% above the rate of inflation. It looks like now it's more like at the rate of inflation or perhaps 1% higher. And that's partly because, you know, debt in the developed 
world has continued to, to mushroom. Uh, corporate debt is very high. So as rates rise, the ability of the economy to withstand that pressure is mutigated. When you think about the, the history of the Fed and what its mandate has been, it has been full employment and price stability. And so you see an unemployment rate around 3.7%, price stability as measured by inflation, CPI, somewhere around 2%. But the thing you pointed out this week that I thought was interesting is this idea of how it fits into the global economy, how the world economy has kind of become a priority for the Fed. That's something new. Right. I mean, the, the economy is more global than it's ever been before. You know, countries trade more than they ever did before. Uh, information flows, dollars flow quicker and faster than ever before. And as a result, the Fed does have to consider what's going on in the, the economies, our major training partners like the Chinese or the Germans or the Japanese. And right now, we're seeing much more sluggish growth in those parts of the world than we are in the United States. You bring up trading, and that was another thing this week while we're in the Week in Review. Certainly on Friday, we got some news. We've got some lower-level uh, parties from both the United States and China about to get together. There was going to be a visit. What has Montana got to do with this? Well, apparently a Chinese trade delegation has been visiting large farmers across the United States during the past several days, and I guess they canceled a trip to Montana. I mean, Montana this time of year is actually quite beautiful to visit. I've been there once and absolutely loved it. But it just shows you how sensitive people are to these trade headlines. The president actually, just prior to the announcement that the Chinese were, were pulling back on that trip, said that you know he's after the big deal. He's not after a halfway deal. And that, I think, got the market a little bit nervous as well. So, you know, we're going to see how this plays out. I'm sure they'll talk it up positively uh, over the weekend and into next week. But the Chinese New Year's October 1st, those very unlikely we'll see anything major before that. But hopefully we'll have a meeting in October with the Chinese authorities and, and perhaps move more close to a trade deal. One more thing before we get close out the chapter on uh, the Week in Review. Consumer confidence, consumer spending. Retail numbers were pretty good this week. The retail numbers have been good. The housing numbers were actually very good, much better than expected. So Citigroup publishes what they call an economic surprise index. And basically what it is is when it's below zero, it means that reports are coming in below expectations. And when it's above zero, they're coming in above expectations. And that thing had been hovering in negative territory for any number of months. But recently it's spiked upward. So basically what's happening is the economy is outperforming uh, diminished expectations, which certainly puts us a little bit of a, a support level underneath equity prices. Dirk Felsky, Chief Investment Officer at Annex Wealth Management. We'll take a break. Going to be back in a bit. The website, AnnexWealth.com. Head there today and click that Get Started button. Custom tailored investment and retirement planning from a fee-only fiduciary. Know the difference. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. And we're back on Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, Saturday, September 21st. I'm Danny Clayton. Mark Oswald is here. Derek Felsky. Speaking of Derek Felsky, the Women in Wealth Group is presenting Women, Wine, and Investing with Confidence at Vino Third Ward. It happens Tuesday, October 8th at 6 p.m. And you're going to be there. I am. Well, Deanne and I do this uh, once a year. Uh, last year, we had a really great turnout. Um, it's not purely for women, by the way. Men are welcome to attend as well. Apparently. And, well, <laughs> well <laughs> I appreciate that. But anyway, you know, we, we cover some basic investment topics as they pertain particularly to women and, and their concerns. Deanne leads the discussion, and I just pipe in when I feel it's necessary or appropriate. Or later in the night. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Um, that is Tuesday, October 8th. Complete details at AnnexWealth.com. Click on our events tab. Plus, you can see details about destination retirement. Are we there yet? That is our really, it's our premier event when it comes to planning, kind of a pre-retirement planning seminar. It's fantastic. We do it a bunch. It's very popular. 
here. The next one is next Tuesday here at our Elm Grove office, and that's 6 o'clock. The next one is uh, Wednesday, October 9th in Lake Country at 6 o'clock. Those do fill up, so go to the website today and, and reserve your spot for those presentations. You know, Derek, you know, we touched on it in the first segment a little bit. Obviously, some geopolitical things going on in the Middle East as it relates to energy and the supply of oil coming out of that region, potentially, and certainly sanctions now on Iran and potential of dragging Israel into this con- this conflict as well. So there's a lot going on there. You know, what I was really surprised by is, is we didn't see a real spike in gas prices at the pump. Yeah, usually they follow oil prices fairly quickly. But frankly, that the upward trajectory in crude oil prices was mitigated almost immediately. We're up over 20% on Sunday night, up about 13% on, on Monday. And much of those gains have essentially evaporated. But it does underscore the fact that, you know, with the U.S. now producing almost 12 million barrels a day of oil, which is more than Russia and Saudi Arabia, the U.S. is less vulnerable to a spike in oil prices in the overseas markets. The other thing I'd point out, too, though, is energy stocks have been horrendous performers. Oil prices have been weak, but the stocks have been even weaker. And many of them are incredibly cheap and do pay decent dividends. So I think what it does is just suggest that there is geopolitical risk with the price of oil. It's something that I think short sellers are going to be aware of after getting burned this time. And to my way of thinking, it just also reinforces that the high yield market is in decent shape too, because with energy prices having a floor under them and so much high yield debt in energy companies, the likelihood of oil going back below 30 bucks is a lot less than it would have been you would have thought so perhaps a couple of months ago. A couple of really important points there I think. You know, first of all, Saudi Arabia is rebuilding the infrastructure fairly quickly. They they said they're going to get back to capacity maybe by the end of the month. I mean, that's a pretty quick turnaround when you look at the damage that was done. The second thing that it struck me right away is that it really encourages the frackers to come back online because we have options now where it used to be that you were just reliant on the Middle East sending oil. Now we have options. To your point, you know, a lot of those fractures are financed by regional banks that issue debt to help that, that exploration of that, and that can, and continues to support the high-yield bond market. The last thing I want to pick up on with you, Derek, while we have you, is we've talked a lot over the last couple of months about the inverted yield curve and what was causing that. And, and, you know, when you start to look at that, people start to hear the R word, recession, because, you know, sometimes when you have an inverted yield curve under normal circumstances, that can be the result. But we can kind of put a pin in the inverted yield curve right now with what's going on in the bond markets. Right. For now, most of the yield curve is not inverted. It's actually gone the other direction. You know, we talked many times in the show that the inverted yield curve has predicted, you know, 10 out of the last five recessions, right? right? So not every time it goes inverted do we see a, a recession in the subsequent months. The other big point, too, is even if it does invert and it inverts for a sustainable period of time, that the lag time between when the yield curve inverts and when you enter a recession is pretty long. It can be as much anywhere from 12 to 18 months. So that doesn't necessarily give you a signal to sell equities across the board, but it does certainly cause you to perhaps reshape your asset allocation given that situation. 30 seconds left here, Derek. Is there a case for the bull market continuing going forward as we get into the last part of the year? I think we've got any number of strong points there. We've got seasonality starting to kick in in a positive way. We've got rates that we know are going to remain low for longer. Uh, We've got earnings that are expected to start to uptick on a year-over-year basis in the fourth quarter. We've got a strong consumer. We've got good high consumer confidence. We have low unemployment. And Tina currently prevails. I mean, it's the best alternative in our view when you look at asset classes is equities and particularly dividend payers with high free cash flow look really good relative to fixed income securities. 
1022. This is Money Talk Annex Wealth Management. Website, AnnexWealth.com. Team, tech, trust, and a fee-only fiduciary model that works in your best interest. Can your advisor say that? This is Money Talk on WTMJ. Know the difference? It's Team Tech Trust, team segment for business owners, CFOs, HR professionals, anybody who's involved in recruitment and retention of great employees. Tom Parks, Director of Retirement Plan Services at Annex Wealth Management. That's what he and his team do. Welcome back. Always good to be here. We like recruitment and retention of great employees. We think it's what America is made of, right? Absolutely. And it's fun to see it with our clients, too, because then we get to work with great people. For sure. Let's tackle two topics today. The first is two bills that Congress is considering that would make it easier for plan sponsors to include annuities in their 401k plans. Your take on that. Right. So there's a whole lot to those bills. So number one is the SECURE Act that's uh, actually passed the House. And, and we, then we now, talked a little bit about that. Yeah, yep. yeah. And RISA is the complementary legislation that's going through the Senate. So annuities within plans is one of the many ingredients there. Um, there are other things about making it easier for smaller employers. So the issue with the annuities themselves, though, is that they're problematic for a number of reasons. They're paying people out over long periods of time is an issue for some employers, so they want to make that easier. But the other thing is, if you move from one provider to the next, there are issues with what happens with that promise that the prior provider made. So they're trying to make it easier, make it make those more portable for employees to facilitate using more of them in retirement plans. Yeah, annuities are complex and it, it doesn't look like these are in a lot of plans and because of that. Right, so right now they're not. There, I mean, there are some, but there aren't as many because of the administrative burden associated with it and then some of the fiduciary risk that gets tied to the employer when you have them. So what the legislation is talking about as it pertains to the annuity specifically is to reduce that fiduciary risk to the employer and to increase the administrative ease with which these things can be put into the plan and moved from one to the other. And the owner is the fiduciary all of a sudden, and they're like, oh, great, I've got this risk now? Yeah, yeah. right. And the, the owners are the fiduciaries throughout. That's one of the things we always have to remind our clients is they're, they're in that fiduciary hot seat. It's just a question of which things apply to them. Okay. So we're talking about the SECURE Act and RISA as well. You're keeping an eye on both of these. And when anything happens, let's get back here and talk more about it. For sure we will. And we're excited. You know, SECURE went through very quickly through the House. It was anticipated that RISA was also going to go, and it's just taken longer than people expected. Okay. Topic two. Hey, how about a shout out to the very busy business owner, the CFO, the HR professionals, and others involved in day-to-day business. We talk about these folks a lot. Uh, You got a lot on your plate, but you know that a solid benefits pack is important to keeping those quality employees on the team. I mean, great benefits keep employees for sure. Tom, did you see there was a recent piece in Forbes about the advantages and disadvantages of hiring a retirement plan advisor? Yeah, so they were talking specifically about fiduciary advisors and the different types of fiduciary advisors that you can hire. And I think the really cool thing about that piece is they, the advantages a lot of people cover, especially in our industry, What people don't cover is the disadvantages, and that's something that I personally spend a lot of time focusing on with our clients, is making them understand the value of what we do for them, but also helping them understand what is still on their plate from a fiduciary perspective. Because we can take some of that load off, but we can't take it all off. Sure. I thought it was a good article. I mean, really, it makes the point that there's just business people. Are just They're just busy just keeping the place humming. That's right? correct. And all of a sudden, they've got the responsibility for this. Yeah, that's the thing. The responsibility for the 401k plan is there. It's just that most people are too busy focusing on the real business yeah. that they're running to really pay attention or, or be cognizant of it. It's like I said, it's a big thing we do is help them 
understand these are the things for which we are taking re- fiduciary responsibility, but then these are the things that we just cannot take off of your plate no matter what, right? And then try to help keep that in front of them. We understand how those things work. We can help them fulfill those fiduciary responsibilities, but educating clients on what's ours, what's yours, and not pretending that we're doing more fiduciary work than we actually are Education is a big part of it. I think one of the other things we do is we watch for stuff that company management might miss. I mean, that's legislation or changes in plans, things like that, because, again, they're busy doing business. That's right. And when legislation and regulations change, usually, believe it or not, in the 401k space, usually it is for the better. And so whether it's something that you have to do because of a regulation change or something that you are now able to do that you weren't before, those are all things that we walk through with people for sure if it's something they have to do. We work with the provider to make sure that it's getting done. But when they make changes in how plans can be structured and stuff like that, we'll go to a client and say, hey, there's this new opportunity ways that, you know, like back when Roth came into play, you didn't have to add it. But these days, if you don't have Roth, I don't know why you wouldn't have it in your plan, right? So bringing things like that up to people, we try to help them make the most of the what the law allows them to do. How often do we talk about how much time that we could potentially save our 401k clients? Uh, that just manifests itself in the work that we do. It becomes pretty clear. It, from a time perspective, that usually the biggest time savings come from creating greater efficiencies at the record-keeping place and coordinating the payroll. Those are all things It's amazing how much time can be saved just by better leveraging the tools that you have. A lot of times people have ac- access to really great tools and they don't even know it. We, having worked with lots of different companies, have seen a lot of these things, so we point that out to people. But also just helping people feel better about the plan being run the way it's supposed to, that is a big part of what we do. Tom Parks, Director, Retirement Plan Services, Annex Wealth Management. He and the team help a number of companies, and they can help yours. Details at AnnexWealth.com. Tom, thanks for the update. Thanks for having me on. Planning and investment insight from a fee-only fiduciary. And we put that in writing. You're listening to Money Talk on WTMJ. Welcome back. It is time for Ask Annex. If you've got a question for us, we'd love to hear from you. Just head to AnnexWealth.com. Look for that Ask button. First this week is from Carl. What's a good way to think about the potential harm to the U.S. economy from a spike in oil prices? That's a great question, you know, because it does have an impact on the consumer for sure. You know, in the United States, we consume about 7.3 billion barrels of oil every year. And if you think about it just in straight line, Derek, you know, if you think about a barrel of oil going up a dollar, it takes 7.3 billion dollars out of the economy. So that's one measurement of it, but there, there's probably a more accurate measurement. Yeah, that's the gross number. I mean, the net cost is a little bit harder to guess at, but remember the U.S. is actually producing 12 million barrels a day, so that's yeah. a significant amount. So U.S. companies obviously would share in those the additional proceeds from higher prices. And the sector also employs almost 700,000 workers. They're certainly less likely to lose their jobs and may get nice pay increases if oil prices were to move higher. And that goes to consumer spending. They've got more money in their pocket and that supports GDP. It's Ask Annex. Next up from Michael. There's been some volatility in U.S. consumer confidence. Should we worry? I don't think we need to worry quite yet. I mean, consumer confidence is basically driven by the job market, and the job market remains very strong. That's why one of the things that we look at in our investment committee are weekly jobless claims. Are people getting fired? And right now, jobless claims have been very low, and that has a huge impact on consumer confidence, Mark. And as we always say, you know, 70% of U.S. GDP is driven by the consumer. Uh, so I view that 
consumer confidence levels to still be supportive of higher equity prices. The other thing we look at is the JOLTS numbers, which is job openings and labor turnover. And you look at people who are leaving jobs, presumably for better jobs. And and that's out there. And that's a function of wage inflation as well. So that's another number to look at. Are you guys um, concerned at all that U.S. CEO confidence is off a little bit? Certainly, you've got to be a little bit concerned when the guys who are running the ship or the gals that are running the ship are a little bit more concerned about what's happening. But there's a lot going on in the world. And if you're not a little concerned about what's going on, You could have your head in the sand, too. There you go. Okay, next up on Ask Annex is from Paul. Why did bond yields surge so quickly? Oh, as we mentioned on the show a few weeks ago, they had gotten extremely overbought, extremely extended, despite the fact the U.S. economy was doing quite well. So some kind of pullback. I mean, the the TLT, the the Treasury ETF, was up over 25% at one point on a year-to-date basis. It's basically pulled back a third of that advance. Uh, So essentially, I, I just view it as a correction in what has been a trend towards lower rates in the long end of the yield curve. Next up from Kenneth on Ask Annex. Has it happened often that GDP growth and bond yields disconnect? And if so, what do you make of it? This is actually the best question we've gotten from a listener, I think, since we've been doing this segment. And when you look at GDP, you say, my gosh, U.S. economy is growing 2 3%. That's pretty good. But why, are, why is a 10-year yield at 1.43%? Well, essentially, it's because there's been a race to zero across the globe. There's $16 trillion in sovereign debt that has a negative yield, so U.S. yields look better. A company like Apple, right, is doing a, jo- a debt offering because rates are this low. They have $200 billion in cash, so why not issue debt at 2.5% and then go out and buy back stock, which basically gives them a triple in terms of overall return, given the money the company earns. And then, of course, the willingness to do buybacks, Mark. It's Ask Annex from Antonio. Any recent earnings developments that we should be mindful of? Well, I think when you look at earnings, we look at it at the index level. We look at the S&P 500 or other indexes like the Russell 2000 and say, what do we expect the earnings to be going forward? We look at earnings growth in in a year-over-year basis. Take back to 2017, Derek. You know, we had the earnings recession where earnings were going down on a quarter-by-quarter basis or a year-over-year basis. And then we just had the blowout year in 2018 when earnings growth was in the 20% range and, and even higher for some companies. Those numbers are hard to match in 2019, we could see earnings growth be positive in the end of 2019 here and as we get into 2020 for sure. Yeah, the U.S. comparisons will get easier as we end the year and into next year even easier still. The other thing I'd point out is emerging markets, which are very cheap relative to U.S. stocks, have actually seen a noticeable pickup in estimates recently. And that's an area of the market that is way underexploited by domestic focused U.S. investors. It's Ask Annex. If you have a question for us, we'd love to hear from you. You can go to AnnexWealth.com, click that ask button. Uh, let's see, got about a minute for Cal's question. What percentage of companies are non-earners and what industry groups are they concentrated in? You know, Derek, this one blew me away when you pointed this out to me a couple years ago, actually. When you look at some of the indexes, like the small cap index, and you look at the companies or the percentage of companies in that index that make no money at all. Just kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's roughly 34% of the companies in the Russell 2000 do not make money. Uh, when we think about you know what, pers- what sectors are concentrated in, there, there's typically biotech is always a large component of that. You know, recent IPOs, companies like Beyond Meat, Lyft, Uber, none of those companies make money and are nowhere close to making money. And it's just another manifestation of a period of really low interest rates where companies that do not make money are able to continue to survive, issue debt, survive, and live to play another day. And as Ask Annex on Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, it is 1041. I'm Danny Clayton. Uh, website, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. Get that free portfolio analysis. Part of that 
can be the free annuity analysis. I learned yesterday that we've done 300 annuity analysis in 2019. So a lot of people have them in their portfolio. What are they? How do they work? Are they working for you? We can find out again. AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. Team Tech. Trust. Money Talk is straight talk from a local fee-only fiduciary. It's time to know the difference. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. Know the difference. It's Team Tech Trust, a team segment about Social Security. And who better to talk about it than our guy, Ron Johnson, CFP and Senior Financial Planner at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back. Thanks, Danny. You're a Social Security guy. That's what you are. It's one of the things I do. You bet. Forbes had a piece that caught our eye. It was called Six Ways Social Security Will Be Changing in 2020. Kind of an attention-grabbing headline, and we're going we're gonna to get into that at the end of this. But I want to run these by you and see what your take is on that. Is that cool? It sure does seem to imply that lots of changes are coming, Danny. All right, here we go. Number one, dipping into the Social Security Trust Fund. Now, number one, is that really going to happen? Yep, it, it already is. And really what that means is that the Social Security they fund your benefit one of two ways. They fund it through current tax receipts. And if that's not enough to cover current benefits going out, then they go into the trust fund and cover the difference. This is one of the first years in a while that they've had to do that. Number two, the full retirement age has increased. Now, we knew this was coming, right? It's been increasing. It's been phased in for years, Danny. Uh, So this is not really news. It has been increasing from the original full retirement age of 65 to 67 for most of us now, but this has been in play for a long time. It's a long time for people to wait. We were just walking the dogs last night, and I ran into a buddy of mine I used to work with, and we were talking about retirement ages, and I, with my limited knowledge, I just said, you know, you get more when you wait longer, and he said, I don't think I want to. <laughs> yeah, and you're absolutely right, Danny, that if you've got the cash flow from other sources of savings, it, it makes a lot of sense, actually, to go ahead and defer your benefit to age 70, because that's going to grow at 8% a year. Six-way Social Security will be changing in 2020. That's what the headline says. We're talking to Ron Johnson about that. Number three, cost of living adjustment. And my subhead is get ready to be underwhelmed. Well, guess what? This happens every year. If there is inflation in our economy, if that means that the consumer price index, if that's growing, they're going to adjust Social Security. If they're not, they're not going to. And for many years, we didn't see see growth in the CPI. So your Social Security benefit didn't grow either. But they are projecting that next year there'll be uh, another adjustment. But like 1.8%. Yeah, very little. Very little. For the top earners, it might come to like 50 bucks more a month. Yeah, just enough to maybe another extra lunch here and there. Number four, maximum Social Security benefits will increase. There's some good news, but, but... Every year, the maximum amount of Social Security that can be received each year increases based on the the wage base, and that goes up every year as well. So again, that's not really newsworthy other than it kind of grabs people's attention. No individual at full retirement age can take more than $2,861 per month. That's the most. That's the most if you claim it full retirement age. It can grow beyond that if you claim it later. There's the ifs and there's the buts. Yep. Number five, more of your Social Security will be taxed. Now, does this surprise people? Do people find out when they're getting Social Security income uh, that they're being taxed on it? Is that a surprise? No, I think most people assume that there will be taxes due on it. Again, this is not really a change for 2020. Your Social Security, Danny, depending on other income sources and the amount of your Social Security will be taxed at anywhere from zero 
to 85%. Really depends on how much income you have. It'll start getting taxed at right around $25,000 for an, an individual, and it'll hit the maximum of 85%, right around 45000 of income plus one-half of your Social Security benefits. So this is not really news. It's always been this way. Talking about a Forbes article called Six Ways Social Security Will Be Changing in 2020, word number six, the end of two great Social Security maximization strategies. First, uh, what are they and how often are they used? So there were two uh, claiming strategies that are available, really that benefited married individuals. Uh, the first one went away actually in 2015. It was called file and suspend. What that meant is one individual could file for and then suspend their benefit until a later date. What that enabled their spouse to do would be collect a spousal benefit on their benefit, and then the spouse could also let their benefit grow as well. It was fairly lucrative, and that's why it went away. And the last few baby boomers who are grandfathered into that eligibility turn 70 next year, and so that's it then, right? And the other one was restricted claim of spousal benefits. How's that work? Somewhat similar to file and suspend. If you file a restricted application, what you're doing is you're filing for a benefit on your spouse's benefit as long as they're claiming it, and you're getting half of their benefit while yours continues to grow. That also is going away. This article, Six Ways Social Security Will Be Changing in 2020, I don't want to call it clickbait. Was that just a sensational headline? I mean, how is this stuff spun in the media? Yeah, so I, I think you're right. This was intended to grab attention. There isn't really any gigantic material changes to Social Security coming in 2020. I would tell you from the articles that I read on a consistent basis that the picture that the media paints is one that's that's fairly dire, that in 2030 we're going to run out of money and benefits won't be available. I will tell you that that's likely not going to be the case. Now, Congress will continue to make changes as they have in the past to continue to make sure that your benefits are funded. At Annex, of course, we take a conservative approach and we understand that, yes, Social Security is important and yes, it'll be there, but should only really be one piece of your retirement picture. Uh, That's why you need to start at an early age and start building your own nest egg, and that can supplement your Social Security benefit. But if it's there, put it to work properly and we can help. Absolutely. Ron Johnson, CFP and Senior Financial Planner at Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Danny. 1051, it's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management website, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button today. W277-CV and WTMJ Milwaukee. From the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is News Radio WTMJ. The longest-running weekly personal finance radio show in Wisconsin. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. Team Tech Trust, this is Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, Saturday, September 21st. I'm Danny Clayton. Mark Oswald is here. So is Derek Felsky, our Chief Investment Officer. Mark, in your hands, I see you've got the Know the Difference checklist. That is handy. If you drive around town here in southeastern Wisconsin, you're going to see that on some of the billboards. You see that phrase, know the difference. And it's a challenge. You know, our firm has looked at other firms. You know, we are a product of our experiences, all of us, no matter what you're doing in life. Derek, you've been in the business since the early 80s. You know, I I followed in the later 80s, Dave, in the mid 80s. So we've got a lot, a lot of years in this business and learned a lot of things along the way. And I think one of the things that I learned the most is in traveling around and seeing other businesses. You know, I've been in 
I don't know, 10,000 different business offices of people who were in our industries, either as fiduciaries or commission salespeople. And I, and I formed a lot of opinions in doing that. And a lot of that is, you know, things that Dave and I and you and the rest of our investment committee really consider when we're building our team and we're looking at our portfolios and everything that goes into that. But one of the things I've always been struck at, one of the things I've always been struck by is the sole practitioners, you know, the, the guys that are hanging up a shingle and doing their best, you know, and maybe they're selling property and casualty insurance out the back door or whatever it might be. But that's a pretty tough business. Yeah. And, you know, and for me, I mean, I was a mutual fund manager prior to joining Annex eight years ago. And I find, you know, what I do just on the investment side, and I have the help of all the other members of the investment committee as well, I feel like I've got a pretty full plate just focused on trying to, you know, invest our clients' money in a wise and prudent fashion. Uh, I can't imagine trying to do that while also trying to build a book of business, uh, learning about the recent tax law changes, understanding Social Security and the countless ways one can play that, or, or thinking about an estate plan. And then again, also going out and meeting clients and reviewing portfolios. I mean, how much time would I be able to spend on the investments? Five minutes at the end of the day on a Friday? And, and then what are you left to do if you're that guy? And, and, and again, we're not trying to rip on anybody. We're simply saying, you know, this is part of Know the Difference is understanding what a team means and what a deep bench means as opposed to hiring somebody who has to make choices and they have to make choices with what they're going to to do during their day. Are they trying to source new clients? Are they trying to market? Are they trying to do operational things? There's a lot of compliance work in our business, for instance, but just on the investment side, what's a guy left to do? I mean, most of the time, they're going to outsource it, right? I would think, and that, that certainly explains why many of these robo-advisors have been so successful, but the problem with those robo-advisors is they tend to buy indexes, and indexes are constructed by investment committees. Many times they're market cap weighted, which be, essentially are momentum momentum indexes, right? Because the more successful you are, the bigger your company gets and the more impact you have on that index. And that's wonderful when Microsoft, for example, continues to make new highs and is now the, the most valued company in the U.S. stock market. But if Microsoft enters a dull period or they find some kind of competitor that's that's eating their lunch on the cloud or somewhere else, then that becomes a detriment to your overall performance. So I believe stock selection and ETF selection and, and proper active management selection is crucial. And that takes a lot of time. And, and it takes, you know, having people that are boots on the ground, that are, that are people that are in the committee that is in the building that you're working in. What I've always struck by, again, is sometimes in firms that I've been in and, and looked at is you've got the guy that's working with the client who then sends off the investment decisions to a guy in New York or San Francisco or Minneapolis who's never even met that couple. And, and I just, I'm dumbfounded by the fact that they're getting some sort of data input and they're making life decisions for somebody that they've never met. Well, that's true. I mean, many times, you know, I'll join a relationship manager in a meeting with a client, particularly they've got questions about what our overall investment strategy is. It's one of the reasons I love this show because it's a way for us to communicate to our clients what we're thinking, which I think is rather unique, right? I mean, how many people have a radio mouthpiece with which to communicate with their clients every Thursday and Saturday? Well, for sure. And, and you know, just bringing it back to our investment committee, it's the collective knowledge and it's the think tank. And sometimes those conversations can get a little, you know, dynamic and heated. And that's good because we're bouncing ideas off each other to the benefit of our client. You mentioned estate planning and tax planning as well. You think about the guys that are out there, the, the sole practitioners again, 
And and again, please, I'm not trying to rip on anybody, but the fact is, is it's hard to know all that stuff. Absolutely. I don't know a lot of that stuff. I mean, I sit in those meetings. I mean, I found out about things that apply to my mom's trust situation, for example. I didn't know any of that prior to sitting in that meeting. And frankly, the financial plan that I have has been developed here. And Danny, you had some experience as well. I mean, you, you know, you've been part of the show now for a number of years. Yeah, I think it was two and a half years ago that my dad became a client as he moved back to Milwaukee and his health began to decline. He wanted things set up properly. He wanted them structured for his kids, his grandkids. So in his final year, he was happy knowing that things were in order and that things would be carried out to his wishes uh, for those that he loved and in a way that he really wanted. That's great. And, you know, that's the challenge, folks, is know the difference. There's a lot of different ways you can engage somebody in our business and try to get help with your portfolio, get to your financial goals. But understand the difference. Go to our website at AnnexWealth.com. Download the Know the Difference checklist. Go through it with your financial advisor. Or if you're considering doing it yourself, think about these things before you make any moves in your portfolio. Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management and not WTMJ Radio or Good. Good Karma Brands Milwaukee, LLC.